Chapter Ten of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: Three Wild Days in Wessex. It was hard to understand at the time why, at the natural and innocent inquiry as to his favourite bait, the local authority should suddenly shut up like some sensitive plant. He had been nobly and generously expansive, measuring his catches of fish as if they were coals by the sack. But now he was reticent and cautious. "'Sometimes I use one thing, sometimes another,' he said. The reason for the change of attitude became clear later, when he was one day discovered in close proximity to a net. But for the present it mattered not. It was enough that he had revealed where fishing was to be had, which involved the substitution of a sack for the more ordinary and modest creel, and there was no unnecessary delay in putting this important discovery to the proof. A sack. Two sacks, for there were two anglers, uh, were put into the wagonette with the tackle and lunch, and the river was reached before ten a.m. had struck by the church clock on the hill. It was not a promising day. Summer, after two months of hopeless severity, appeared to be endeavouring to surpass itself, and leaden masses of cloud swept across the sky at the bidding of a rushing, mighty wind. But the river, seen from the high stone bridge on which we were standing, looked as attractive as the keenest seeker after free fishing could desire. Above the bridge was a broad gravel shallow, on which were doubtless the dace of which the local authority had spoken, and, it might be, a trout or so as well. In the distance the mill could be seen through some trees, and a point above the shallow where two streams met suggested a backwater, as well as a mill stream, and, presumably, a weir-pool. Below the bridge the river curved away among trees in a tempting succession of stream and pool. The problem, inevitable on a new and unknown water, arose. What was to be fished for, and where? The fly seemed hopeless in such a wind. The shallows were no better than a storm-swept sea. And indeed, so far as could be seen, the water above the bridge was shelterless. Below, a clump of trees a meadow's distance away offered more hope, and thither the indomitable companion strode firmly without wasting words. His instinct proved to have been right. The river turned a sharp corner under the shadow of the trees, forming as perfect a pool for perch as could be met with. The rods were quickly put together, and soon two red worms were offering wriggling attractions to the fish in two convenient eddies, and the anglers sat somewhat sheltered from the icy blast. Almost immediately the indomitable companion's float disappeared, and a fish was hooked, which turned out to be a nice perch of nearly a pound. It fought gamely, but the pool was too deep for weeds, and the net soon claimed its own while the wind shrieked with renewed vigour as though to celebrate the success. Incidentally, it tore from its parent limb a piece of wood that was almost big enough to be called a branch. 
and hurled it to the ground in dangerous proximity to the head of the indomitable companion. He, however, paid no attention, but calmly rebated his hook, and was soon fast in another perch, which was also safely landed. I had, so far, not a bite, and I stirred uneasily as the wind hurled down another piece of wood that was quite a branch, this time near to my own head. The indomitable one continued to catch perch, and the landing of each fish seemed to be a signal for a shower of missiles from above, which were steadily increasing in size. At last, as a great log came down with a resounding thud about a yard from me, I rose, seized my tackle, and, announcing that I thought I would go on and explore upstream, departed without unnecessary delay, leaving the indomitable one in the course of extracting the hook from his sixth perch, with an extremely cheerful countenance. It was long, he said, since he had had such sport. Some hundreds of yards were covered before it was deemed safe to look back, and then, amid what Horace calls a world tottering to destruction, a bending rod showed that a seventh or might be even an eighth fish was being added to the basket. A pious wish was uttered that the ruins might miss that heroic being, and then the hasty flight was resumed. Such a gale surely there was never yet on sea or land. The poplars below the bridge were bending like fly-rods, and creaking like a rusty winch. Other more stubborn trees were being destroyed piecemeal, but in the bridge itself and its high embankment there was hope. They could hardly be blown down and behind there was a welcome calm, in which a perturbed angler might collect his faculties, and presently, for sheer shame, I put a fly-rod together. It would be possible to cast within a few yards of the embankment, and the dace might, like the perch, be on the feed, out of a spirit of pure contradiction. And, oddly enough, this proved to be the case. A pluck at one of the three flies was felt at the first cast. It was impossible to see a rise. At the second, a fish fastened and was landed without much ceremony. In such weather, the finest tackle would have been a mockery. An undrawn gut disposed of the dace, for all he was the half of a pound, with promptitude and dispatch. Then began such an hour of sport as may never come again. The fish seemed literally mad for the fly, and Black Nat, Soldier Palmer, and Coachman were all taken with instant impartiality. And it seemed that the dace were all big ones, running between half and three-quarters of a pound. Several times two were on the cast together, and once even three, of which one got off. Many were lost, in such a wind it could not be otherwise, for it was impossible to attempt to humour a lightly hooked fish. But the fifteen pounds of dace that had been amassed by the time the rise was over seemed to justify the sack which they half filled. The indomitable one, whom a merciful providence had spared, appeared in time to assist in the counting. He had, he complained, been prevented from making a phenomenal bag of perch, 
by the trivial circumstance of a tree being blown down into the very pool which he was fishing. As it was, he had only caught eleven. With three roach of a pound each, and the tree having disturbed the river somewhat, he had also set out to explore. Exploration was, however, interrupted by the coming of the rain, which had so far held off, and the day's fishing ended prematurely. Nevertheless, as we went homewards we agreed that the local authority was a very estimable person, and that we were singularly fortunate in having stumbled upon a piece of free fishing which even the English climate could not render bad. When the weather improved, we assured each other, we should do something remarkable in the history of angling. All that was necessary was a little patience until the gales should have blown themselves out. Summer cannot always disguise itself as winter, and after two months we were entitled to hope for better things. So we waited our chance and studied a depressed and unsympathetic barometer. At last one morning the wind dropped, and the indomitable one greeted me at breakfast with the words, "'It's going up!' I hastened to verify this glad intelligence. Sure enough, the needle had moved. It no longer presaged seismic convulsions, and disheartening phenomena of that kind, as it had been doing for some weeks, but was content to indicate rain. This, my companion pointed out, clearly meant a fine day, since no barometer could be expected to recover itself all in a moment from such upheavals as we have been having, and any upward movement at all was a sign of complete change. Now, therefore, was our expected opportunity. The greyness of the sky, he explained, was a sure sign of midday heat. We started accordingly. During the drive I surveyed the heavens with suspicion, and when we reached the bridge I called his attention to a certain rumbling noise that was going on in the distance. I'm always diffident about rumbling noises when I'm out fishing. One has read horrible stories about fire falling from heaven upon the angler by way of his rod, and consuming him. But the indomitable one knows no panics of this kind. He said it was guns on Salisbury Plain. Those weapons also, in some obscure way, seem to account for the oppressiveness of the air, and the indubitable masses of heavy cloud that hung low on all points of the compass. Having explained these things, he led the way upstream to the weir-pool, which we had decided to fish that day. It was a deep, still hole, with very little current coming over the sill, and to me had a dark and dismal appearance. I can never take a cheerful view of any water when there is a rumbling noise in the distance. However, the rods were fitted together, some ground-bait was thrown into the pool, and we began to fish for roach. There were no bites, and apparently no fish in the pool to cause them. Presently, too, I felt called upon to observe that the guns on Salisbury Plain must be getting nearer, since the sound was steadily increasing in volume. The indomitable one suggested that a breeze was getting up, and was assisting the noise to travel. But there was no breeze, and, so far as I could see, no excuse for his equanimity.
Before long I was compelled to ask, ironically, if he thought there were guns all round us, because the rumbling was now plainly coming from several directions at once, and to the meanest intelligence was obvious and alarming thunder. He admitted rather regretfully that there did seem to be thunder about, and after an awe-inspiring clap, remarked that there must be a good storm somewhere. When it broke, the fish would wake up. He had long been curious to find out whether fish really did feed well in a thunderstorm. With this he threw in another handful of ground bait. I, however, had risen when the last peal began. My interest in the scientific effect of electricity was languid. I said, there are three good storms, and in about three minutes they will be here. I don't believe the most perverted fish would bite in three thunderstorms, and I shan't wait to see. The indomitable one laughed, and I fled, taking refuge in the sitting-room of a little farm hard by the mill. We neither of us know to this day whether fish will bite in three thunderstorms better than in one or none, because even the indomitable one was compelled to retreat before the torrential downpour that began in a few minutes and lasted until after five. The mill formed a convenient centre for three separate storms, each one more violent than the other, and we spent an unprofitable day looking out of the window and watching the lightning as it played about and destroyed the surrounding country. When the rain did stop eventually, the river was the colour of pea soup, and roach-fishing being out of the question, we went home, disconsolate. After this the barometer needle went back to its prognostication of earthquakes, and the indomitable one refused to fish any more. It was not that his heart quailed before our English summer, but that it was filled with righteous indignation. A refusal to fish seemed to him the only way in which he could mark his disapproval of the weather. I acknowledged that he was right, but still I badly wanted to try the stream again, for I was certain that its possibilities were untold. So, one morning, I bethought me of the old adage, which promises sunshine before eleven, if it has been raining before seven. It was raining nicely at half-past six, and a brisk wind got up about nine. There was just a chance when I started that this would dissipate the clouds and give the sun its opportunity. I took a fly-rod, and set out in my waders and a short mackintosh coat, determined to give the dace on the shallow another trial. The water was reached at about half-past ten, just when the clearing up ought to have begun, if there was any truth in adages, which there is not. As a matter of fact, the rain chose that time to begin in real earnest, and continued vigorously for the rest of the day. I endured many things, including sodden sandwiches for lunch, and persevered in spite of them all, but the fish did not seem to appreciate my efforts. It may be that Wessex days demand more violent weather than was vouchsafed to them that day. 
The wind, it is true, was creditable, and the rain did its best, but there was no mad rise such as there had been before. The fish came short, and it was not until I retired to the shelter of the bridge and added to each fly on the cast a tiny tail of white kid that I could manage to catch any at all. Without extraneous aid, three dozen nice little fish, averaging perhaps three ounces, were creeled. The big ones seemed to have vanished, and there was not a half-pounder in the whole catch. I proved, however, to my complete dissatisfaction, that Mackintosh does not make a man weatherproof. Between a short wading coat and the back of one's waders there is a small, unprotected gap. The rain finds it out immediately, and one is more miserable than if one were wet all over. There was only one bright spot among those grey, damp hours. About six in the evening, a March brown, that had been put on as a tail-fly for a change, rose a fish, which at once leapt into the air and unmistakably proclaimed his quality and species. He ran out line in a grand fashion, and it was some minutes before he could be coaxed down to the net. A trout of well over a pound and a half, which in shape and condition was perfection itself. His capture formed a curious conclusion to a curious experience of weather and fishing. End of chapter 10